Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is Dr. Julia Bernards, um, who's going to talk about her dissertation. She's also joined by her husband, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. Um, This is a groundbreaking dissertation that you need to do to become a PhD. And so I'm um, Julia is now Dr. Julia Bernards, but this is um, a dissertation um, done at BYU. I'm looking at a copy of it. it, has the BYU logo on it. It's been vetted through BYU. Um, the name of the dissertation is This Whole Journey Was Sacred, Latter-day Saints Parents Processed to Coming to Accept a Transgender Child. So this is kind of, this is groundbreaking, and there's lots of parents that are parenting a trans child, but this is the first time at BYU that a doctoral student has approached this from a research perspective. And this will be deeply helpful for you parents, um, as well as local leaders, um, people that want to understand this space better. Um, I think it'll help you if you're trans, um, hearing some of these stories and Dr. Bernard Bernard's insights. So um, thank you for listening to this podcast, listeners. The thing you can do, you can't donate, but you can rate and leave a review. Haven't had a review in a couple months. Those are always interesting for me um, on Apple. So you could Google how to re- do a podcast review and write one up there. They help other listeners connect with the podcast and help me know um, how the podcast is helping you. So with that, um, Julia, turn, I'll just kind of get you talking. I think our listeners want to hear from you. You, I, you could introduce, you know, your station in life. You're married, you have kids. Um, you've gone back to school for a master's and now a PhD, so you're not 25. So you could share a little <laughs> no. bit about that journey. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, yep, Sam and I have been married 23 years now and have four kids. <laughs> ages 22, 20, 17, and 13. They're a fabulous crew. And um, I graduated with my bachelor's degree from BYU in 2000. And we got married um, in 99. By the time I graduated, I was very pregnant with our oldest. And so I spent the next 15 years raising kids. And then when we had um, a job for Sam that brought us back to Provo, I felt strongly like it was time to pursue graduate work, which I had kind of written off. I I didn't think that would be part of my life, um, but felt really strongly to pursue marriage and family therapy at BYU. And so I applied and was lucky enough to get into the program and i love that's a whole keep sharing yeah keep sharing okay yeah so that kind of started that journey um, of getting to be a marriage and family therapist and when i started the masters i knew i wanted to pursue a phd that had actually been a goal of mine since i was in eighth grade (laughs) I, i wanted to do a phd so um I finished the master's, I practiced for a year to work towards licensure, and then got back into the PhD program and was not initially doing research about um, transgender and gender diverse folks and their families in the church. Um, I was doing some wonderful work with Angela Bradford that was 
quantitative research, but when our oldest came out as transgender, that just threw me into this world more than I ever had been before and really informed what I wanted to focus on in my research. That's really cool. Um, yeah. I have to thank God I had a hand in all of this, but keep sharing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like he did too. And in fact, when um, Emma came out to us, as I was processing, one of the things I thought is, is this the whole reason? Is this why I'm getting a PhD? Because I needed to be prepared for this and I needed to um, have the the knowledge that I did at that point. And of course, that knowledge that I had then is increased a lot, a lot of experience and a lot of research and learning. Um, one of the things I didn't know when we started this journey was that our journey would follow the same pattern of many parents. I um, like every story is intimate and unique and all of the circumstances and the timings and all of that, all of those things are different for every family and for every person. But um, because of the training I had, I, I kind of thought I had a leg up and um, that our journey was going to be different or that it was different. And it was only after years of doing this research and hearing from so many parents and gathering this data that I realized no, our journey was very similar to a lot of parents, which is kind of um, kind of neat to see. You know that that's a. I really am part of that that community, and those experiences are very shared. Um, so let's see here. Our oldest Emma came out to us first as bisexual. I think she was kind of testing the waters and I thought we responded fine. Um, we listened and we're like, okay, thanks for telling us. That's, that's great to know. Um, she said maybe we didn't respond as well as we could have because then it took her another few months to come out to us as transgender. And that was in December of 2019. She was um, at BYU and um, Emma has been and continues to be the type of child that makes parents feel good about themselves. <laughs> um, she um, is just a loving child, has always been very eager to be diligent in the gospel and to be loving to people. And it's just... A wonderful child. And um, Sam and I have sometimes said that she probably volunteered to be our first child so that she could get the brunt of our parenting mistakes. And she definitely has. Um, but she probably would have wanted to spare her siblings pain. And that's the kind of the person that she is. She's thoughtful and bright and creative and an amazing sister and diligent and steadfast. Um, anyway, so when she came out to us, even though I had some understanding of um, the transgender community and just the concept of people being transgender, I had no idea that that was happening for Emma. 
And so we were um, pretty caught off guard. There was a lot of shock and grief. Um, because I had that training, I felt like I knew the right things to say. Um, but even as I was trying to do that, my I, there was just a lot of turmoil and a lot of grief and shock. Um, and we made mistakes still. And so, uh, you know, we, we kept the conversation open. I think that first evening uh, when we were talking with her, we probably, I mean, one of the things she said to us was, um, I know that you will always love me, but that you cannot accept me. And that just hurt my heart. And I thought that that is what would drive a wedge between us. And, and I am not willing to have her believe we cannot accept her. So we started in this journey. Um, Sam, anything you want to share about that, that initial stages? It's hard to be um, the right sort of loving parent when your child comes out, especially um, if you've never gone through that before. And I think, um, I think our children, especially Emma, felt unnecessary pain from us as parents because we made very human-like mistakes through mm -hmm. it. Yeah, And that's been part of my journey as a dad is to learn how to love a little bit better and how to accept. Yeah. Um, so the morning after she told us, I um, had spent a pretty sleepless night. I went to the temple early that morning and was really wrestling with what I was supposed to do um, as her mom. And so I was praying, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And the answer came, your role as her mom is to love, accept, and support. And I got that message, but then I was like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean help her find the right therapist? Does that mean ask her the right questions? Does that mean help her um, figure this out in a way that means she's not trans. I, I didn't know. And so I just kept wrestling and wrestling and it took the whole session before I really was able to absorb that message and feel peaceful about, I, this isn't something that I have to do. I need to just be loving. I just need to accept. I just need to support. It's not something that I have to fix or change or anything like that. Um, less than a week after that, we were super lucky with our timing, was an Encircle Summit. And I had already had tickets because as a um, therapist, I wanted to be part of that community and learning and how to serve better. But I quickly got Sam and Emma tickets as well. And Sam had a really beautiful experience that um, helped us be more on the same page. Do you want to share some of that? Sure. So um, I, I had a very meaningful vision and understanding of an aspect of the atonement of our Savior Jesus Christ, who I believe stands side by side, each one of us as our Savior and has in some form or fashion gone with us through our own journey of life in order to understand our needs, 
our um, sins, how to atone for those and how to help us to become better. And although I don't really understand the mechanism of that, as I had this experience, I felt my heart soften. And I felt like I had been in a position where I was um, acting out of fear, even though I didn't think I was. Um, I was acting out of criticism, even though I really didn't think I was. I thought I was um, accepting and loving, but in this moment of understanding, I also had kind of a self uh, reflection moment, uh, looking in the mirror type of a moment. And I felt very inspired by the love that our Savior has for each one of us to atone for each one of us individually. And the the visual metaphor that um, I had in my mind was simply him walking side by side, me and each one of my children in their path in life, especially during the dark times. And um, as, as I saw this in my mind's eye, the question became, can I do what the Savior is doing? And the answer is no. I, I don't even understand his atonement and the complications and how it was performed. But there is an element in what the Savior did that I think I actually can do. And that was walking by the side of my child. And so I felt inspired to be the sort of father that would be by my child's side, no matter where they go, no matter what decisions or who they become or who they are, or no matter what, I need to be the type of person that they know is there for them. They know is loving. And it's kind of easy to say and hard to do. And I'm still learning how to, how to do that. But it was a very pivotal point for me and one that helped me act more from a base of love and acceptance. That was terrific, Sam. Yeah. I I really appreciated um, that Encircle Summit um, for the learning each of us did, the time it gave us to reflect, um, get on the same page. Uh, So at that point, like we both had had this, these personal revelations about what to do. Um, but I still had a lot of questions. Um, I knew basics about what it meant to be transgender, but I was still struggling to wrap my head around it. So I started researching and reading. I made a whole list of resources that I was sharing with people. I got connected to parents groups and I just threw myself into that understanding process. Um, so in that there was, you know, a lot going on in my mind, a lot that I was trying to learn. Also, there was a lot going on emotionally. There was a lot of grief. Um, it, it was, it, it was hard. It was hard to have, um, my child, um, I guess not be who I had thought originally i mean so many elements of her were continue you know continued to be the same person but that gender piece turns out feels like a really essential part of identity and so that was that was hard and there was a lot of grief um 
during that period, I was trying to keep up with classes in my PhD program and um, trying to keep up emotionally and had other kids that I was trying to keep up with. And um, I felt like I was drowning sometimes. Um, And so I uh, was actually really grateful. That was about the time that COVID hit (laughs) and everything stopped. And that gave us some time and space to process, for Emma to transition some more. Um, Also at that time at BYU, Quentin Hunt, um, who researches suicide and how to decrease suicide, um, was starting the research project about LDS, trans and gender diverse folks and their families. And um, so... I knew I could talk to him about Emma and I shared that with my cohort, um, got a lot of good support there. And then um, the following semester, I took a qualitative research class from Dr. Jason Whiting. And that was excellent. And I was able to use some of that data from Quinton, from his research and um, used some of the podcasts from Listen, Learn, and Love, where you had interviewed parents with um, transgender people. I so appreciated that. And um, so I did kind of a preliminary study as part of that qualitative research class. And after that, I thought, this is this is what I need to be researching. This is so important to me. And so um, I switched my research and started a dissertation. And um, my research question for my dissertation was, what is Latter-day Saint parents process in coming to accept a transgender or gender diverse child? And then also, what are the factors that help that process or hinder that process? And I wanted to understand it personally for myself, kind of like a view of um, what's coming for us and where we've been, but also it was really important for me to understand it professionally because as a therapist, I want to be there for those parents and for the kids and be able to help them through this process in a compassionate way, helping them have the resources and understand the process so that they can have that journey facilitated. Um, so in coming in looking at how parents come to accept a transgender child they had to define what i meant by acceptance there's kind of various levels or degrees of that you know maybe uh parents initially are somewhat affirming or they um maybe start to use some names and pronouns and what i was wanting to look at for acceptance was like the end of the process so This is where there is peace with the child's gendered self Um, there. It's not just tolerating it, but it's um, really having that transgender identity be integrated as part of the family's understanding. There being a narrative that the family has about this person and um, that the the child feels completely accepted as they are. And parents might still experience some grief, but that attachment piece, the child feeling 
seen and known and loved and accepted as they are is there. Um, so that's kind of how I was looking at acceptance. And then the research that we did um, included 27 parents that we interviewed as part of that BYU study. Also 11 parents from your Listen, Learn and Love podcast um, who were LDS parents of transgender or gender diverse kiddos. Um, and then also 130 posts from uh, various Facebook groups um, from LDS parents of trans kids. That amounted to more than 600 pages of transcripts. <laughs> wow. It was a lot to read through and absorb and do that research coding. Um, there were also three members of the research team, um, whereas myself, and then another LDS mom with a transgender child, and then um, a trans man who is also part of the PhD program who's not affiliated with the church. So we had kind of some diversity in perspectives. And um, the title of the study, This Whole Journey Was Sacred, was a quote from one of the parents that we interviewed that we felt like had really reached that stage of acceptance. And as I immersed myself reading all of that, um, all of that data, all of those interviews, we transcribed, you know, so many of them and then just read through them, seeing the parents' um, experiences their fears and mistakes and their love and how they're striving to do well that sense that it was a sacred journey really summed up what i was seeing the process of these parents i believe is reflective of the process of life that we're learning to love more deeply and see more clearly and in that journey, we have our limitations and imperfections highlighted, and we get to work on them and um, really get to be closer to God. So one thing that we also saw in, in this research is that when a child comes out as trans, there's a lot of facets of parents' experience. This is probably not at all new to you and maybe not to many of your listeners. Um, so the, those facets, there's mental components, there's emotional components, there's social things that come up, and there's also spiritual implications. Each of those facets of life was impacted in, in this these parents' journeys. Mentally, we saw how the parent thinks about or conceptualizes their child um, needed to undergo some changes, how they saw even gender as a construct um, that needed to change, how they saw themselves as parents, all of those things got challenged. And that could be scary and overwhelming to have things that they felt really certain about. We, we like certainty. Certainty is, is clarity and safety. And so when those things that we feel certain about are called into question, it can be scary and unsettling. And we saw that one of the first things parents did, as I did, I mentioned in my story, was try to wrap their heads around it. Um, maybe 
do some reading or research or talk to people, um, really trying to understand the idea of being trans and and hopefully really trying to understand their child's experience of being transgender or gender diverse. Um, emotionally, we saw all of the stages of grief and also different types of grief. Um, denial was pretty common early on. We saw that from a number of parents. That was the case for me too. Um, part of me was just not ready to accept that this was reality for my child. It, took a while to get there. Um, sometimes denial looks like hoping it will go away or believing that it can't be true or just avoiding it. Um, and sometimes some of the parents that we heard from talked about that that stage lasted for years for them. Um, sometimes it is much shorter. Sometimes parents are ready to move forward in weeks or months. Listen, this is a little plug I want to make as a as a therapist, I guess. Um, and this is part of that emotional piece of sometimes parents felt like they needed to be not affirming. Um, they needed to not accept what their kids were saying because they were afraid that if they did accept it, it would um, solidify something that maybe didn't need to be solidified or that wasn't true. And so I just wanted to share that listening to someone's experience with love and curiosity and openness, validating that their experience is what it is, won't hurt them. It won't reinforce something that's not real. And in fact, that openness, that listening can create safety and connection. And as I mentioned before, feeling seen and heard and known and accepted is so essential for humans. And when people feel that way, they're able to be their best selves and make the best choices. They're able to look at things um, from all angles and make, you know, make decisions about how to move forward that are most likely to be healthy. So listening, I think, is so important. And that's what you're doing here, obviously. So in addition to denial that sometimes lasted a long time for parents, there was also stages of grief included like bargaining and anger, sadness, um, also confusion and fear and loneliness. Parents often expressed a lot of fear for their child about what being transgender would mean for them in terms of safety, uh, their physical safety, and also like their uh, mental health, spiritual health. There is also a lot of concern for parents leading up to a child coming out sometimes because sometimes those kids were not in a good place. They, they Their child would be suffering and they didn't know why. And that was really distressing. And so sometimes having the child come out was even a relief um, if it gave the parent something to look to and say, okay, this is something we can work on and we can work with. Now we understand. Um, but that recognition of their child's danger was also a really strong motivator for parents to engage in this journey and in this process with their kids and coming to accept their identity. Um, 
so I mentioned we saw all the stages of grief and also different kinds of grief. Um, one of those is called disenfranchised grief, which is grief that doesn't really have a voice. And that might be because a parent's grief might that might be not able to be expressed because their child is not ready to come out. And so the parent can't talk about it. It might be because the parent doesn't feel like people in their circle would understand or they'd be afraid of judgment. And that having this heavy grief without being able to talk about it, without being able to process it with other people can be really heavy. We need social support. And sometimes parents weren't able to get it. And that was a, a heavy piece. Another type of grief that we heard about from parents was something called ambiguous loss, which is where there is something being grieved, but it isn't clear exactly what's been lost. Um, so for example, a lot we heard from a lot of parents, it feels like I lost my child, but my child is right here in the room with me standing right there. And so it can be complicated to not be able to put your finger on exactly what it is you're grieving. Um, and then sometimes, you know, it is clearer what you're grieving. Um, parents realize often they were grieving the expectations that they had for their child that went along with the previous beliefs about their child's gender. So whether that was like, getting to go wedding dress shopping, but now we won't do that because my child identifies as male. Or maybe it's serving a mission or getting married in the temple. Um, there's a lot of expectations that we have as parents in regard to our kids that when that shift happens and they identify as the other gender or as gender diverse, that's lost. So that might be one of the, you know, parents are grieving that. Um, sometimes parents are grieving the sense of being the parent they thought they were. And that might be like, for me, I, it's such a silly little thing, but I thought I had two boys and two girls and I thought, what a cute balanced family I have, you know? And so I realized one day that that was a little piece of what I was grieving. I didn't have two boys and two girls anymore. And we couldn't say the girl's bathroom and the boy's bathroom. And it was, it, you know, it's just a little shift, but um, that changed. And then also, you know, one of the things I grieved was in our ward, I felt like we were one of the strong families that was there to help others. And I felt like kind of lost that status. Now we were one of the families that needed help and people were um, trying to reach out to us and be supportive. And I appreciated that. Um, also, though, it felt a little uncomfortable to be in that different role. Um, one of the things that I uh, learned about grief in this research as I was looking more into what's happening uh, neurophysiologically with grief is that we lose our mental framework. We grieve when how we see the world and the people in our world, our relationships um, falls apart. And that might be a a loss through death, but um, it can also be 
a loss like this. So our mental framework, maybe how we perceive gender or how we perceive a child, or as I'll talk about more later, how we perceive our faith gets deconstructed to some degree. And that's uncomfortable. That grief of losing how we thought about the world can be a heavy one. Um, okay. So I also said this, and I'm just talking and talking. Is that okay? Do you, yes. if you have questions? My impression is our listeners want to keep hearing you talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so another aspect that we saw in parents' journey was social. Um, parents often reported feeling lonely or isolated, especially at first, um, maybe until they found a support system. But for some parents, that feeling of isolation continued, even within their social circles, within their ward or family, if there wasn't support. Um, that was really hard. There was a, a quote that I was just so poignant. It, it has stuck with me for a long time um, that really brought this idea of that social isolation, the loss of kind of the the role that this mom felt like she had, and also of this disenfranchised grief. So one of the moms we interviewed said, we are a family in the foyer now. We aren't in the chapel. You don't get casseroles for this type of grief. Wow. And I thought that was so profound, that that image of we're on the outside, we're in the foyer. Maybe we don't fit in with the families in the chapel. And other people don't see our grief, don't know what to do about it, aren't bringing us casseroles. That social impact is, could be really quite profound for parents. Um, our wards are often where we find a lot of belonging. We feel pretty integrated, hopefully, in our wards. And so if um, a child coming out as trans or gender diverse upsets that, it can be really hard. Uh, one memory I have from just a, probably two weeks after our oldest came out, and she wasn't out to everyone yet, but it was weighing heavily on me. And I went to a Relief Society dinner or something like that and just chatting with the other women. And they kept saying, so what's going on in your life? And and I, there was this huge thing going on in my life and I couldn't tell anybody about it. And I was like torn up, but I just had to say, oh, you know, we're doing great. And wow. um, that isolation piece can be pretty hard. So it was really, as I mentioned in, you know, earlier in my story, it was really valuable to find um, not only resources of information, but resources of community too. Um, over time, getting to feel integrated with a community where I could talk through things without feeling like I might be judged for it and get support was really valuable for me. And we saw that a lot in what we heard from parents too. Um, it was valuable to join Mama Dragons. That's a, a local, it's actually expanded group. Um, they have a Facebook group and including one for um, parents of transgender children. And there's several other Facebook groups, particularly for LDS parents of, of queer kids 
that I really appreciated being part of. It was stabilizing to realize that I wasn't alone and to be able to get and give advice and support and reassurance. And we heard that from a lot of parents too, just that that community piece was so important. Um, so the last facet that, and I say last, but definitely not least, um, for parents who are spiritually invested in their religion and their child, the spiritual challenges were huge, um, a big part of their experience. As far as our research showed, it wasn't really possible for parents to get to that place of acceptance that we were investigating without wrestling with some spiritual implications about um, having a trans or gender diverse child. So a few quotes. I, I loved, loved, loved reading parents' stories. And so getting to share their voices is so powerful. This quote actually, um, this first one is from your one of your podcasts from episode 106. The parent said, it's important to understand that when your child comes out, you have a big struggle of how your membership in the church and being able to love and accept your child, how that meshes. Um, another parent said, there's a cognitive dissonance. That's the only way I can explain it between what I know and believe as a faithful, active member and what I know and believe based on the relationship and the love that I have for my child. Another parent said, the re religion that I've dedicated everything to suddenly is not accepting my child for who I feel like is just exactly who he needs to be. Um, and then one of our other study participants said, it's difficult sometimes to sit through lessons at church when people quote the proclamation, when it reads that gender is an essential characteristic of our spiritual well-being. What do I do with this piece of doctrine? It's painful because the church's beliefs are pretty black and white there. So, of course, um, parents were having to wrestle with this. and. That wrestle was an important part of their journey. It wasn't acceptance yet. They had to have the wrestle, but also figure out how to resolve the wrestle. Um, and one of the pieces that came up from nearly every parent we heard from in resolving that wrestle and figuring out what to do, how to reconcile these ideas was personal revelation. That key was um really really wonderful it had there's beautiful stories i know you're familiar with those stories richard um some of those quotes from parents were one said i just felt prompted we needed to believe him and love him another said um it just overwhelmed me that god loves my child no matter what and that's all i needed to do um, one of the parents from the posts on Facebook said, I prayed and decided to accept my child exactly as he was with zero qualifiers. And I went to the temple with my answer in mind, walking into the temple, my fears melted away. My anxiety and doubts shed off of me like an old tattered blanket. And my soul was instantly lighter. Um, so that personal revelation piece 
was so beautiful and so um, prevalent in these parents' stories and journeys. And one of the things that we found interesting as we did this research was that we didn't hear from any of the parents in our research. Um, And that included a lot of parents who not only hadn't gotten to a state of acceptance yet, but some who really felt that it was important not to accept or affirm their child. We kind of had to go looking for some of those parents. We felt like that was an important voice to include in this research. But all along the spectrum, none of the parents said, my personal revelation was to reject my child or push them away. None of them said that. And even ones who were, you know, struggling, like one of the moms was not using the child's desired name or pronouns at that point, but talked about how um, she felt in personal revelation, rebuked by the Lord at one point, because she was trying to keep her kid out of SGA, like the student Gail, I don't know. It's a, it's a school group, you know, to help support uh, the LGBTQ community in schools. And she did not want her child to go. And um, and so when her child asked if she could go, she said, no, you may not go. But she had also been telling her child she couldn't participate in any of the online communities. And and so and that she was only allowed to participate with people in person her age. And so when her kid said, OK, well, here's people in person my age that I could interact with, she still was like, no, no, just stay away from them. But as, after she said that and had a moment to reflect, she said the spirit spoke to her and said, this is what you are asking your daughter to do, and you need to support her in doing it. And so she turned the car around, took her kid back to school and said, you can go. Wow. And I, I just loved that story. Um, other factors that helped parents in their spiritual wrestle were trust in God and also getting to the foundations of their belief of their testimony. So um, one dad, and this was on um, your podcast episode 230, said, we really had to rely on the Lord. We really had to turn to the Savior to get us through this. And luckily, the Lord is patient. He prepares the way. He prepares us. Another parent said, there's a great deal of trust in the Lord that he will know each of us individually. Um, whatever road it's had to be in this life, he will make all things right, which is such a sweet feeling to have. Um, And then getting to that foundation of our belief, um, one dad said, the gospel is of love. And we can just focus on that. That is the direction I think the Lord would have us go. Jesus's prime core message is of loving all and reaching out to those who are marginalized in society. Another mom that we interviewed said, the thing that has kept me is just concentrating on the Savior and trying to follow his example and going down to those roots in the gospel. Um, So those were the, the pieces, the facets of parents' experiences that we found, that mental, emotional, social, spiritual. And as we 
looked at all of those facets. We also were looking for um, the kind of a theme that would pull all of it together, because of course the research question, going back to that, was what is the process? And so we saw there is a process. Uh, one of the themes then that we saw that kind of became a, a core theme because it came up so much, it was one of the most highly coded um, pieces of, of data, was transformation. That parents talked about how the journey transformed them and that it brought progress that they really treasured. So um, some quotes from parents. One said, I know God made my child this way for a reason. I believe part of that reason was to teach us to love like he does. I have learned and grown so much on this journey. Another one, um, and this was uh, from Facebook, it looks like uh, a parent posted, I feel so much like Eve. Like I have tasted of the tree of knowledge. For years, I had my rose-colored glasses on as an active member of the church. Now my kids have come out. As I've pondered and prayed, researched and listened, my eyes have been opened. Um, in response to that Facebook post, another parent said, Eve is my hero. She was given an impossible tasks task, commandments that were opposing. She had the courage to rely on personal revelation, think outside the box and do what she felt was right. I go to church and mourn the simple days with simple faith. My faith is so much more now. I, like Eve, see the paradoxes in the church. I walk by personal revelation instead of by every word that is taught at church. Like her, I am both shamed and applauded for my beliefs, but I've come to know that God is proud of me and is beside me. If I am good with God, I'm good. Wow. I loved that. Yeah. Um, another parent said in talking about his transformation, I've come to see God as expressed deep in the eyes of the least of these. I think that's where God really resides. Um, and then one of the first um, participant couples that we interviewed said, having a trans child in our lives, the world has more color than it ever has before. Our faith is more nuanced. I'm not being as black and white as I used to be. I used to have everything in neat boxes where my faith is concerned. But understanding my child and accepting him has opened my eyes to, to much more beautiful parts of life than I ever imagined. So it was so beautiful to hear from these parents, to get to witness their journeys, which were hard. I mean, I'm sharing a lot of the lovely things, but them talking about how incredibly difficult it was, was also very prevalent. This is not an easy journey. Any journey that transforms us is going to be like a refiner's fire. You know, <laughs> it's kind of how it is. And if we're in a refiner's fire, we're probably going to feel like a puddle. So parents feeling like puddles was something we saw a lot too. Um, so back to that research question of how does this transformation uh, happen and what is the process? 
after going through all this data and coding it and sitting with it and writing about it and talking about it as a research team, what emerged was a process that um, we later discovered parallels a lot of models for growth. So I guess we were onto something. <laughs> we, we tried to have it just come out of this data. And so what we saw was that parents typically start in a state that I'll I can call equilibrium. It might be like um, clarity and um, maybe you could say there's, I don't know, a, a box or structure. So parents start in this stage typically where they're pretty clear about their beliefs, about how the world is, and that's calm and good. There's equilibrium there. There's certainty there, which is comforting. But then new information comes in, and there's this stage we called assimilation, um, where they're getting more information. They're getting information from their child. They're getting information um, maybe about their child's distress. Uh, maybe their child comes out to them and this is this is new information doesn't fit in the structure. That's where there's often this confusion and fear, anger, denial, loneliness, and um, parents' conceptualizations, the way they are seeing their child, the world, themselves, um, begins to get a little bit, gets challenged. And then this next stage we called deconstruction, where some of those um, beliefs that had formed their structure are taken down, deconstructed. And there is the opportunity for growth and for new perspectives, for um, understanding their child in a new way. And in that phase, there was grief. Like I said, grief um, for how the child was perceived, feeling maybe like they lost their child, sometimes grief about aspects of their faith that are being molded and changed. There is often fear still. Um, but there's there's this like opening up also to expansion, to growth. And then as that growth starts to come together and parents start to say, okay, I'm, I'm getting, you know, I've expanded my, my old structure doesn't fit, didn't fit anymore, but I've put these new pieces in. I've held on to some foundation pieces. Then there is, we, we call this accommodation. There's some increased clarity for parents. There may still be grief and fear, but it's less they're starting to make sense of things again. And then as that all coalesces and their sense of their child is like, okay, this, I thought my child was male. Now I understand my child is female or I used she, her pronouns. Now we're using they, them pronouns. And um, I know how to interact socially and 
I am feeling more solid in terms of what I'm going to do spiritually and where I am religiously and emotions are getting more settled. That state accommodation, which then goes into a new state of equilibrium. And I, um, in the dissertation, there's a graphic that I put together that kind of illustrates this. And the graphic includes a kind of a, it's like a, a ribbon goes black and white striped, and then it gets a little fuzzy and then it turns into little bits and then it coalesces again. And now it's rainbow. And that kind of represents to me that expansion of ideas of understanding the perspective of love, of acceptance. And, um, so that was kind of the, the process overall that we were seeing that fits with um, one of the models that we found um, that it parallels really nicely is Jean Piaget, who is a child psychologist. And he talks about how children learn and schema adaptation, how we update our understanding of the world. And it looks very similar to what we found with parents. We, As adults, guess what? We get to continue to update our understanding of the world. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And getting to expand our understanding of the world, to have it be more able to accommodate diversity and difference with love, I think helps us get to be more like God. Um, so that process then made me also wonder, are there other processes that this parallels, not just in the in how it happens, but in what is happening? And one of the things that was really valuable for me and continues to be valuable for me is understanding this stages of faith. So there's a number of, of researchers that look at stages of faith. Um, and three of them that I kind of uh, examined were Jim, James Fowler, who kind of did classic stages of faith, and then a more recent one, Brian McLaren, and M. Scott Peck. And then there's one who I didn't include in my dissertation because I hadn't found him yet. Um, I think it's Jared Halverson. Yeah. But he, yeah, he talks about um, the garden, fall, and creation uh, and atonement. Anyway, it was really interesting to me to see how parents' journeys were also about faith expansion and development, as well as cognitive or conceptual development. What I was seeing was that a lot of parents were going from what James Fowler would have called synthetic conventional faith, which is um, where there's a an understanding of, you know, kind of some some breadth of <laughs> people's diversity of, of um, religious beliefs. And so people try to put their religious belief into a cohesive whole. And the person usually adopts a, like a religion, they're religious, maybe they subscribe to a particular religion, but um, often it's hard to get outside of that box. Um, 
sometimes it's hard to even see that you are in a box that it doesn't define reality. And so then the next stage is this individuative reflective stage, which is often a challenging stage where people in terms of their religion and spirituality are seeing outside of the box, realizing that there are other valid ways of seeing things. And they start to critically examine their beliefs and maybe they become disillusioned with their former faith. Um, People in that synthetic conventional stage three often think of people in that next stage as backsliders. They feel like they are maybe have fallen off the path or that's problematic. Um, But it was helpful for me to see that it's okay. It can, having um, an expanded understanding does not mean being unfaithful. It means learning and growing and transforming. So um, I have some last quotes I'd love to share, but before I do, is there, do you have any questions? Well, this is just really a unique podcast. Um, Dr. Bernard's and parent Bernard's from a professional standpoint, um, using research, the resources at BYU, plus your own journey as a parent, um, having a transgender kid. And um, these are some of the things I wrote down, listeners, as I was listening to this. I wrote down um, the power of personal revelation. And our church teaches that the family structure is eternal. The church structure is not an eternal organization. I don't mean to minimize the church, but the church is a means to create eternal families. And so much of our doctrine is the hashtag hear him and receiving personal revelation. So I love that that was part of your findings is parents went to personal revelation and they got personal revelation. And I think our job at Phil Lottery Saints is to honor their personal revelation um, the church may not have answers for every family situation. They teach principles of hear him. That's a principle to have personal revelation. And then I think we honor the personal revelation that, that families are receiving. Um, I thought of the road to Jericho. My wife and I hiked up um, a mountain, <laughs> a short hill, to look over the road to Jericho. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're on a tour there a couple months ago. For those of you that follow Emily Bell Freeman, she was our tour director. And that's, if you're aware, she broke her foot in Israel. She actually broke her foot climbing that hill. She still climbed the hill and taught from the top of the hill and then posted about her broken foot later. Really brave. Um, At the top of the hill, we didn't talk about queer Latter-day Saints, but we talked about the Good Samaritan, and the way they set that up is that was somebody, as we know, that was society um, looked down upon, the Samaritans. They were, and I thought of transgender people um, the whole time I looked over the road to Jericho. And in that parable, Christ elevated the, the Good Samaritan, actually gave that group of people a positive name, the Good Samaritan, not just the Samaritan, talked about their moral moral. I don't know what the right word is, um, coming, rising in a way that no one else did to bless somebody else. And I think it's good to look at these parables and recognize um, some, of the, some of the trans people I know um, just rise above all the divisiveness and 
They're really remarkable. Your daughter, Emma, is probably one of those. So um, I thought about the Good Samaritan and the parallels to transgender people. Um, and perhaps the Savior taught that parable. So the principle of that parable would apply um, throughout you know, the rest of mortality. So there would be groups of people sometimes that we branded as Samaritans, but people are hard to hate, close up, move in. That's part of my invitation is don't form opinions about Samaritans if we live back then or trans people until we listen to a lot of trans people and see maybe more importantly how they're able to contribute to society. You introduced a couple of terms I've never heard before. Um, disenfranchised grief. That was terrific. Ambiguous loss. Here's my child, but my child is gone and um, there's no casseroles coming my way. I've I've sensed that with parents of queer kids that um, this is a different type of grief than a kiddo that's just been in an accident. It's been airlifted. And um, not to say that's not, that's a hard thing to walk also, but I think this gives us more tools to understand um, how to engage with parents with a trans kid, how to support them, how to ask about Emma. How is Emma doing? Um, what is she doing? Um, what, how's her life taking her? And Emma isn't gone, <laughs> as you know. Yeah. <laughs> and my guess is Emma's a terrific woman doing wonderful things in this world. Um, this BYU research listeners was not research saying this isn't real. Um, this isn't a 188-page study with a conclusion that says transgender is a fad, is con say, confusing his children, is the sign of the last days. That is not in the conclusion. And as you are, and so our leaders, when you go to the website about transgender Latter-day Saints, that isn't the conclusion of our leaders either. And so uh, this is in the middle of a real difficult political topic right now where this whole group of people is being dismissed and sort of used for political gain. And um, that, and I'm going to, you know, that there's a podcast we did. I just, it's, it will never leave me. Um, I'm not sure any of these podcasts will, but it was episode um, 631 where Dave and Kimmy Martin talked about their transgender son, Levi. And he died by suicide on a Sunday. Dad, uh, mom came home from church and um, I'll just read part of his obituary. Levi Martin, age 17, formerly known to many as Emma, passed away suddenly in his home at home in Lakeville, Massachusetts. Levi is the child of David and Kimmy Martin. He was born Emma Rachel Martin in Montgomery, Alabama in 2005. Levi's gender was intersex caused by Swire syndrome, meaning he presented at female at birth and although, although he was genetically male, this resulted in his condition and resulted in gender dysphoria that came with a host of medical and mental issues combined with social stigma associated being with intersex, transgender, gay. Levi suffered immensely until the constancy of that pain became unbearable. And this is kind of a trigger warning, listeners. We're obviously talking about suicide, but I want to read um, part of the episode description of that podcast. This is once again his episode 631. And these brave parents came on the podcast to talk about this. And they said they talk about their bright, intelligent son, Levi and their joint efforts to understand the cause of his emotional challenge that was finally understood to be transgender. Even with that understanding, they talk about how Levi turning 18 was, quote, 
terrified of how society treats transgender people. And so that word, listeners from Levi, is, you know, that's a, that will never leave me. No one, no one should create content that makes somebody terrified of being who they are. That is so opposite what Jesus did on the road to Jericho. I can't remember if he was on the road or just taught the parable. Sorry, listeners. Anyway, he was there teaching that parable. So the work that Dr. Bernard's doing, um, and in this case, one of the points I wanted to make about Levi, there was sort of a biological, if I'm using the right, with Swire syndrome. So we kind of moved that from a, into a medical. And we sort of maybe say, that's okay, we understand. Um, there's a podcast we're going to do with Landon Phillips and his mother Monica coming up. Same type of story where he finally did DNA testing and he found his chromosomes were XY, which is male versus female, which is XX. But both of these families make the point that even um, even if we don't understand the science why someone like Emma, you know, feels trans and identifies as female, we shouldn't dismiss their story, even if we can't connect all the dots. Because I believe... Um, this will just learn more about this space. Science, like you're teaching us, Dr. Bernard's um, research, I'm hearing stories, is our friend to help us better minister, understand, and support each other. So everything you're doing, even though it gets more complicated than not everybody's fits in these binaries, is sort of, apparently God's okay with it because he's creating people this way. Um, and he loves them. And I don't think anybody should look in the mirror and feel they're a mistake. So those listeners are just some of the notes I wrote down um, just as I'm trying to understand this space. The question, and then I want you to keep talking in the show notes. Um, two things we'll put in the show notes right now. One, we'll put a link to all our podcasts with trans. So we have a link on our website because we have 600 plus podcasts on listenlearnandlove.org. Um, where we index all our podcasts. So there's a link I'll put on the show notes with just trans podcasts. This will be in there, obviously. And then can we, is your dissertation something that's public? Um, yes. I don't know the rules of dissertations and BYU logos. So tell yes, us, tell us if that can go in the show public. notes. <laughs> so yes, it's absolutely public and um, you're welcome to put a link there. Anybody can also just Google this whole journey was sacred and it's the first result that comes up on Google for me. Maybe that's because I've looked, I've gone back to it a number of times, but um, if you Google this whole journey was sacred transgender, that should come up. It's um, like you said, a very long <laughs> dissertation. Um, I think it's about 188 pages, but the sections with the, the findings, the quotes from parents, I think are just so beautiful and really worth reviewing. Um, and there's also uh, for therapists um, or anybody interested in being helpful to families that get to have this journey. There's some ideas at the end about um, clinical implications. So how could, how is what this research found going to help us better work with and serve these families. And um, so then I would just end with a few quotes. 
that were meaningful to me again just in in the process that these families are experiencing the beauty that has come from really tough situations for the people who identify as transgender or gender diverse and for their family members so one parent said this process and having a transgender child is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a miracle. Another said, you will pass through this and come out with a greater capacity to love and a greater understanding of God. Another said, on this journey, we have experienced immeasurable personal and spiritual growth. And then back to the, the beginning, the quote that I used in the title, this whole journey was sacred. And I really felt that from parents. I feel like, um, as I said earlier with Emma, I have known since she was small, far before I knew that she would identify as transgender, that she was the type of person that would take an assignment on earth that would help people and allow others to grow and to have their pain reduced. And I really think she has. And I'm so grateful. For her and for many people. And I, I also don't want to minimize the fact that the experience for many is devastating. As you mentioned, um, the fact that having an identity that doesn't fit society can mean such distress that it leads to suicide is, is really a painful thing. And that's what I'm hoping that we can reduce. Uh, it's just been a terrific podcast. Um, you know, you're a therapist. I think you're moving to North Carolina from Provo. You'll be licensed mm-hmm. in North Carolina at some point. You're still connected with Flourish Therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, that place is doing incredible work. I still think you'll do teletherapy for Utah that's clients because you're licensed in Utah. Um, good luck in your move. Um, Emma, if you're listening, I'm glad you're alive. I'm glad that you've, um, your mom and your dad talk about you the way they do. I think this is a beautiful family love story. And I love where your mom talks about peace. That's what we're trying to get to and um, peace. What a beautiful thing that I think is attainable to have peace in our lives. I love that you went to the temple. I love these open conversations that Emma said, I know you love me, but do you accept me? I think you said that. And then some of your temple feelings were love and acceptance, support. And how does that look? And then your honest story about the grief and the process parents go through. Um, And so you've got this personal, real story with all this research and academic framing. It's really, really helpful. Emma, if you're, you know, if you're listening and this is me talking to all my trans friends, you have wonderful lives ahead of you. And if you're at the stage of peace and family support, or if you're just beginning, stay close to God, um, stay close to personal revelation, do this the best way you can. Um, sensitive to stories of somebody that's detransitioned, that can be uh, a valid story for that person. There are stories like that out there, and I honor those stories, but I would caution us about what I would call weaponizing a story like that and, and discrediting everybody else's experience because of one story or a few stories. 
those stories um, for those people are valid. But every story is different. And so each person's and their support structure has got to help themselves determine the best way forward. And let's extend grace and support, but let's don't weaponize stories against each other. That can be really dismissive of somebody's lived experience to have somebody that dismissed through a story. Um, this is a great podcast for leaders, for parents. I'm just thankful for the work that you're doing, Julia, Sam, and this beautiful family. And anything else? I kind of introduced the detransition stories. I don't know if you want to have any thoughts on that or just anything else you want to say in closing. I think what you said is is wonderful. Every story, every experience deserves to be heard with love and compassion. And hearing someone's story, as you know so well, will 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 lead to safety and and goodness it's there's never harm in really hearing someone's story it's great write your own story listeners if you're trans you know it's good to hear a bunch of trans stories and follow the research but at the end of the day you've got to write your own story that's authentic to you and it will probably look different than other trans people but write that story at the best time that you're in the best place to do that and you may have to start writing that story now, um, dealing with whatever amount of transition just to get you in a mentally stable space. So it's just complicated. And I don't want to be a therapist here because I'm not. <laughs> I got a business degree, so that's way out of my realm. But um, anyway, I think it's just probably good to sign off. But um, Dr. Julia Bernards, um, thank you for your groundbreaking, groundbreaking work. And I think you're on God's errand and Emma and this beautiful family and all these parents that you quoted. If you've been quoted, some of these things are the most, you know, well thought out and, you know, most thought, just wonderful quotes about how to love and support and the personal revelation you're receiving, receiving the, doing the hard work to get that. And this is Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.